Okay, uh, my name's uh, Robin Burgess, and I'd, I'd like to welcome all of you uh, to the lecture we're going to have uh, today. Um, I'd like to introduce the speaker, who is perhaps one of the most uh, distinguished uh, practitioners of uh, development policy, um, Ngozo uh, Okonjo Iwela. Uh, started off her education at Harvard University and then went on to do a, a PhD in regional economics at MIT and has spent the bulk of her career in uh, the World Bank in various uh, positions both in East Asia uh, and the Middle East. She then spent a, a stint in the Nigerian government both as Minister of Finance and Minister of Foreign Affairs and, uh, and subsequently became the uh, managing director of the World Bank, which is the post that she currently holds. In some ways, I think the trajectory she's followed and her interests, which are both reflected in her work at the World Bank and the Nigerian government, but also in setting up a number of NGOs, kind of reflects some of the big challenges in Africa, uh, which surround issues, for example, such as the starting up of enterprises. So this idea that we have to have business, we need to get business going in Africa to generate growth and to lift people out of poverty, but also some very central issues to countries like Nigeria, amongst many other African countries, which center around the whole issue of governance and accountability. And what's going to be interesting about the lecture this evening is that we're going to sort of see some of these issues through the lens of the current crisis. Um, so we're, we're, we have an opportunity to sort of hear from somebody who has been both in uh, government at the World Bank, but also sort of in the civil society, private sector side of things, talk about uh, uh, looking beyond the crisis, challenges and opportunities for Africa. So I'm very pleased to uh, introduce the speaker. And the format we'll follow is that uh, Ngozo will give a speech for about half an hour, and then I will chair uh, a series of questions, which we hope will uh, stimulate some debate about this very interesting uh, subject matter afterwards. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to Professor Burgess. I was um, going to say that maybe I should grade you on the pronunciation of my name. <laughs> but I'm afraid they'll grade me after the lecture. So <laughs> perhaps I should, I should uh, resist. But it's a wonderful thing to be here and to see the room packed full of uh, young people and to be in this august uh, institution. So I am uh, very pleased. Uh, that doesn't take away from the older people like myself who are also in the room. Thank you for coming. So today I want to use uh, the opportunity of the crisis to talk about what is happening to African countries and then try to look beyond the crisis to the challenges and opportunities for, for Africa. And um, yes, I fully expect some of the points will be controversial and maybe generate a good debate. But let me uh, start by saying that um, it's a refreshing break. In a refreshing break from a stagnant uh, past, Africa made remarkable progress after 1995 on the back of improved policies, institutions, and governance, as well as debt relief. For the first time in 2006, according to the OECD's DAC committee, private capital flows to sub-Saharan Africa at 48 billion exceeded official flows at 40 billion. A striking index of change 
is the positive manner in which governments managed the commodity price boom period, which preceded the global crisis. Countries which we might well have regarded as incorrigible vastly improved fiscal management, putting away rainy day funds, bringing down indebtedness, and ushering in greater transparency. In this, I speak from personal experience from my tenure as finance minister in Nigeria from 2003 to 2006, where we tried to put in a range of reforms, including an oil price-based fiscal rule, which enabled us to budget below the prevailing price of oil and put away a fund that today enabled Nigeria to be one of the few low-income countries to be able to manage a fiscal stimulus, just like the developed countries, even though it was 0.3% of GDP. As a result of the reform and growing political stability, growth rates went up between 1995 and 2007, putting Africa on a good trajectory. Then crisis after crisis intervened. Starting in 2007, Africa, along with the rest of the developing world, was hit by the food, fuel, and fertilizer crisis. The hallmark of this crisis is captured in the following assertion by an agricultural economist in a meeting I once attended. He said, you tell me the price of gasoline and I'll tell you the price of food. And as we know by now, biofuels were a major factor in hitching food to fuel prices and driving them up. As a result, food prices, which were earlier reasonably stable, have now become much more unpredictable because oil prices are among the most volatile in the world. Although food prices have fallen from the historic highs of the past year, we know that the trend is up. Real commodity prices are forecast to be on average about 25% higher during 2009 to 2018 than over the 1999 to 2007 period. Driven by higher transportation costs, higher demand for biofuels, higher demand for meat, meat products, and by exchange rate movements. Further, as a result of climate change, the occasional drought has morphed into the more frequent and more devastating drought, as has the occasional flood, making food security and even life, safety of life a concern in many low-income countries. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had devastating floods in Burkina Faso, which they're still trying to deal with. And now, we are contending with the impact of the global financial and economic crisis on Africa, bringing in the fourth F. And I ask myself, why do all these recent crises begin with an F? Food, fuel, financial, there must be something going on, and fertilizer. Africa was spared the first round effects of the crisis because of its limited financial integration with the industrial countries. South Africa and to a smaller, smaller extent, Nigeria and Kenya being exceptions. <clears throat> but the crisis is now taking a toll through the various channels, the channel of commodity prices, foreign direct investment, especially in the natural resource sectors, remittances, tourism, and a possible slowdown in aid flows. Significant job losses have incurred. And today I spent a great deal of my time and interaction with some of the media talking about this, because this is a little known story. There's a lot of focus on what has happened in the developed countries, but not as much on what is happening in some of the low-income countries. The Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, has lost 200,000 jobs in mining. Zambia, 10,000 jobs in mining. Cameroon, 1,500 jobs lost in the wood industry. 
Most African countries have been hard hit and need to cope with the crisis while positioning themselves for a return to fast growth once the crisis ends. Because this crisis, like its predecessor, the Great Depression, will one day surely end. As Larry Summers said in March, the economic advisor to President Obama, when the situation was at, at its bleakest, there is one ineluctable lesson of history of financial crisis, they all end. The issue is how. Indeed, the latest data from the US, France, and Germany indicate that the green shoots of recovery are taking hold sooner than we might have expected. The IMF's July World Economic Outlook forecast has upgraded world growth for the next year to a plus positive 2.5% on a purchasing power parity weighted basis from 1.9% in its earlier April forecast. Growth in the advanced economies is now expected to be 0.6% in 2010 compared to zero in the earlier forecast. But jobs will continue to lag for several more months. The recovery is regarded as fragile and growth is likely to be slow in the medium term. A key factor in the upgrading of the growth forecast for next year has been the decisive and innovative fiscal and monetary measures taken in the rich countries as well as China, which have naturally been anxious to avoid the mistakes from the Great Depression. As a result, the increase in the US fiscal deficit in fiscal year 2009 compared to 2008 is expected to be eight percentage points of GDP, more than twice the combined income of all low-income countries for 2008. And the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve has ballooned to more than twice its pre-crisis size. Any developing country trying to imitate this would suffer an immediate and sizable ratings downgrade. Yet on Monday, just last week, Moody's confirmed um, that the AAA rating for the US and the UK is not in jeopardy. For developing countries, the earlier than expected recovery in OECD countries, albeit fragile, is good news because these are key export markets. But there's considerable variation among developing countries with much of the growth expected to come from China and India. Many of the smaller, more trade-dependent economies in Asia and Africa are expected to lag behind. Looking beyond the crisis, the vital question for Africa is how to make even deeper inroads into poverty reduction through creating jobs, particularly for its burgeoning youth. In dealing with this question, Africa faces, faces seven challenges, and that's what I really want to talk about. One, sharpening the role of government. Two, keeping public debt on a sustainable path. Three, managing volatility. Four, fighting corruption. Five, promoting political stability and social harmony. Six, dealing with climate change. And seven, accelerating growth. And wrapped up in these challenges are four opportunities. First is promoting labor-intensive manufacturing, raising agricultural production and productivity, seeing climate change and using it as an opportunity. And four, recovering assets hidden and stolen abroad, which can serve as a valuable source of development finance. These are opportunities that are rearing their head or manifesting themselves in the present climate, and that's why I seize on them. Not that they're the sole things that need to be done uh, to make Africa's deeper inroads into poverty reduction happen. First, the challenge of sharpening the role of government. The role of government is going to be more important than ever in post-crisis Africa, 
because there's going to be even less room for error. Governments need to maintain the pre-crisis reform momentum while giving even higher priority to public debt sustainability and managing volatility, two old challenges to which the crisis has given a new twist. In the midst of all the hand-wringing that is going on about the futility of macroeconomics, something which Paul Krugman, I understand, regaled you with during the recent Robbins lectures right here at LSE, and the massive interventions in the markets in the West, the rededication to reform in Africa stands out. The communique from the November 2008 Tunis Conference of African Finance Ministers and Central Bank Governors should allay any fears of any large-scale policy reversal. And I quote, African central bank governors and finance ministers agreed to deepen economic reforms in the full convictions that such reforms have served African countries well, yielded strong macroeconomic stability, fostered growth and resilience to external shocks. I really think that is, it's important to pay attention to this, that in the midst of all the stress of the crisis, the policymakers are not stressing turning away from policies which they feel have worked for them for this past decade, but are insisting that they want to continue that. And their actions speak louder than words. Some concrete examples. Zambia is running a modest fiscal deficit, 2.6% of GDP, while maintaining the medium-term expenditure program it had established pre-crisis. Tanzania's emergency program includes government support to the banking sector that is strictly time-bound, something that the U.S. program lacks. The DRC used an emergency credit from the World Bank to finance infrastructure maintenance and pay, help cover education expenditures, especially teacher salaries. Nigeria is planning to deregulate its downstream petroleum sector, which should regenerate substantial savings from reduced subsidies. These examples show that African countries are attempting to live within their means whilst protecting key expenditures and sticking to the pre-crisis reform path as closely as possible despite the severe impact of the crisis. Is this going to be enough in the post-crisis world? My colleague and chief economist at the World Bank, Justin Lin, has been arguing that the state should play, quote, a facilitating role consistent with a country's comparative advantage as determined by its endowments. Facilitating means helping with technological upgrading and productivity growth in two ways, by subsidizing innovation and removing constraints to the adoption of new technology, by simultaneous improvements in education, financial and legal institutions and infrastructure. But Justin is equally emphatic about what governments should not do he says they should avoid high levels of protection and subsidies, which distort market signals, and end up wasting resources that they cannot afford to waste. So if I were to adapt what he's saying, he says that he's saying that African governments need to give a push to firms which are in labor-intensive sectors and which are proving themselves by new innovations that pass the market's uh, test, whilst enhancing and enforcing good budget discipline promoting competition and investing in people and in infrastructure. The perennial, po perennial policy question is how to do this without squandering resources as has so often hampered, uh, happened when governments try to pick winners. 
I'll return to this challenge when I discuss the opportunity in labor-intensive manufacturing later in, the, in my speech. The second challenge is debt sustainability. Many low-income countries in Africa can expect to benefit from debt relief and substantial debt write-offs. Indeed, some have benefited under the heavily indebted Poor Countries Program and the Multilateral Debt Relief Initiative, or other avenues and other initiatives such as that availed by my country, Nigeria, during my time there as Finance Minister. If this has happened, then why am I raising debt sustainability as a challenge? For three reasons. The first, 53 countries which had reached a decision point by the end of April 2009 can expect to have the external public debt stock reduced by more than 80% once all sources of debt relief are included. But be careful, the process there is not yet complete. Second, simulations done even before the global crisis intensified show that debt sustainability remained a concern for no less than 60% of the 26 countries that have completed all the requirements for the HIPIC initiative. That is, those who have already benefited from debt write-offs. Besides, these calculations do not take into account domestic debt or the cost of meeting the Millennium Development Goals. Third, debt sustainability is going to be a bigger challenge than ever in post-crisis Africa. With growth rates slowing, the outlook for fiscal revenues worsening, plus the prospect for higher world interest rates, African countries will find their debt burdens rising, especially if governments want to maintain cost spending to preserve a platform for fast growth once the crisis ends. For this, cost spending, defi defined by us as spending on health, education, social safety nets, and operation and maintenance for infrastructure, will need to be protected. So there's a dilemma. If you want to protect this, either you get resources on concessional terms from the donors or you get foreign direct investment or domestic investment or you borrow. So this is what has to be watched. But what else can be done? Certain measures could be taken. Some wasteful expenditure can be looked at to see how this can be cut, cut out. Government can rationalize some of their public expenditures improve tax administration to ensure that compliance improves and the tax burden is fairly distributed. But I don't think this will be enough given the magnitude of the crisis and the possibility that Africa will recover only with a lag. That's why it's important to also find additional concessional uh, funding that can preserve cost spending, thereby protecting the progress Africa and other low-income countries have made in reducing poverty and improving social indicators. And I don't see why African countries should be shy. If the developed countries have been able to put together $5 trillion fiscal stimulus for themselves, protecting some of the cost spending of African countries, which would cost in the neighborhood of six to seven billion, shouldn't be something that is too difficult to imagine. How about challenge number three, managing volatility? Managing volatility from exogenous sources will continue to be a top priority. Studies show that large episodes of volatility are the ultimate culprit in hurting long-run growth in poor countries. Right now, African countries are battling one of the biggest external shocks they have ever they've encountered in decades. As I just mentioned, the immediate priority is to take steps 
to prevent the emergence of another debt problem, which would then make it harder to cope with adverse ex exogenous shocks in the future. For example, from terms of trade or drought, because fiscal revenues would be used up for debt service instead of being spent on infrastructure and the social sectors. Not only will this serve to amplify the shock, since there is no way to cushion its effects, the cuts in infrastructure and social spending, if they happen, will harm long-run long growth. This, there is a special challenge for oil exporting countries in managing volatility, and they account for 30% of Africa's population, so it's worth mentioning. Even countries like Nigeria, which manage the oil boom period very well through a combination of counter-cyclical fiscal policy based on a conservative reference price, as I said earlier, and at that time, greater transparency in recording and use of oil revenues, remain excessively dependent upon commodity exports. While the improvements in fiscal policy have served to cushion the non-oil economy from oil price fluctuations, thereby helping agriculture in particular, oil still accounts for the lion's share of exports and fiscal revenues in that country, in Angola, and in several resource-rich countries, the commodity that are still very heavily commodity dependent. Good counter-cyclical fiscal policy helps, but it's evidently not enough to achieve diversification. Therefore, an explicit diversification strategy is needed in these countries, and two opportunities exist in labor-intensive manufacturing and agriculture, which I'll return to later. Let me talk about challenge number four, fighting corruption. I didn't start with that because um, I think those of us who are African are tired at every turn. Whenever you mention the, the continent or any country, the first thing to think about is governance and corruption. So it's a huge problem which we have to deal with, but I thought I'd fold it in with the others. And uh, say that notwithstanding the improvements in governance and fiscal transparency over the past decade, fighting corruption remains a huge challenge on the continent. Given the sharp crisis-related decline in Africa's growth rate, more concessional funding and aid will be needed to avert or at least minimize a potential human crisis. But Africa cannot continue to seek aid while simultaneously allowing its public resources to be stolen and siphoned out. Moreover, these stolen resources, which are often taken overseas, could become a significant source of development finance if repatriated. It's funny to me that countries seek $20, $30 million sometimes, and donor countries worry about how they get approval from their parliaments, sometimes for quite small sums of money in donor aid for countries, when large amounts of resources of some of these same countries are lying abroad. There's an estimated 20 to $40 billion per year that escapes, which is equivalent to 20 to 40% of overseas development assistance. And we started an initiative, the Stolen Asset Recovery Initiative at the World Bank, launched in 2007 by the World Bank and UN Office of Drugs and Crime, to try to work with countries outside, abroad, to see how they can repatriate the assets of these countries. You don't, I'm sure that uh, it saves trouble if you go to parliament and say you're trying to recover something which already exists and doesn't need to be appropriated. I think you get a better reception. Challenge number five is political stability. Political stability is crucial 
as illustrated by Kenya's experience. Kenya began implementing significant reforms in the early 1990s, but growth did not take off until 2003. While the benign external environment of the time helped the takeoff, surveys indicate the successful and peaceful December 2002 presidential election was the critical factor in lowering political risk and fostering stability, thereby improving the investment climate. Unfortunately, the December 2007 presidential elections and the violence which followed has been a severe setback, although the subsequent formation of the unity government has restored some measure of, of uh, stability. Entrenching political stability is a crucial challenge for Africa, must be seen as an integral part of the new normal. Everyone is talking of the new normal. What is going to be the state of the economy, global economy, and how will it function after the crisis? What will be this new normal? Prior to the financial crisis, there was an encouraging trend in political stability. Long-standing civil wars in Liberia, Sierra Leone, DRC, and other places ended. Landmark elections resulted in the installation of the first African woman president in Liberia. An opposition victory in Mauritania and an end to military rule in Sierra Leone. But then, a new cycle of instability started with events in Mauritania, Madagascar, Guinea-Bissau, of course Zimbabwe, now Gabon, and so on. African politicians need to recognize that there is a neighborhood effect on growth. That is that when something happens in one country, even if far removed, it tarnishes the image of the entire continent and makes it difficult for investors to think of coming to invest in other parts of the continent. So that neighborhood effect is crucial, and that is why all countries need to put this front and center if Africa is to make a considerable stride, not only in going back to its pre-crisis growth path, but as we shall talk about, in accelerating growth. One good thing is that the African Union and the regional organizations like ECOWAS, SADC, and so on are playing an increasingly constructive and positive role. They're not always doing it the way that we want it, or as fast as we want it, but it's a far cry from the types of roles that they used to have in the past. Challenge number six is climate change. Africa is the continent most exposed to the ravages of climate change, even though its contribution to the problem has been small. The seminar work done by your own Lord Stern, my former colleague at the World Bank, points to this. As we speak, unprecedented floods across Africa that I referred to earlier, displacing hundreds of thousands of people. By coincidence, the World Bank's World Development Report for 2009 which is on development and climate change, is being released today. According to the World Development Report, no matter what is done, temperatures are going to rise by a minimum of 2 degrees centigrade. And even if the temperature increase is contained to this, 2 degrees centigrade, annual per capita consumption in Africa will be affected and will fall permanently by 4 to 5% according to the, to the Stern Report, if nothing is done. The reach of malaria, already the biggest killer in Africa, will spread to higher altitudes, putting 90 million more people at risk. Countries like Ghana will incur heavy output costs associated with malnutrition and diarrhea, stemming from impact on water and ecosystems, and 10 to 15% of African species will be lost. These are the challenges that are being posed by climate change. 
And I'm glad that increasingly cognizance is being taken of this and uh, it's been increasingly discussed by African policymakers, but I'm afraid that it's not yet at the level of consciousness of African populations. Climate change represents a particular challenge for rain-fed rain, rain agriculture, which employs 70% of Africa's population. The challenge is therefore to minimize drops in yields as a result of changes in weather patterns. As much as 9 to 20% of Africa's arable land will become much less suitable for agriculture. So Af an Africa must move away from some of the practices that contribute to climate change problems. The use of biomass fuels, which exacerbate deforestation, contribute to indoor pollution, and leads to respiratory diseases. Another challenge is augmenting Africa's energy resources in order to accelerate growth. No country has ever grown and developed without adequate energy supply. The combined power generation capacity in the 48 countries of sub-Saharan Africa at 63 gigawatts equals that of Spain, which has 1 20th of the Africa's population. That's how bad it is. The majority of Africa's population, 70%, do not have access to modern energy supplies. This is a challenge for livelihood, a challenge for growth, a challenge for access to basic services. Finally, accelerating growth is the biggest post-crisis challenge. And when I talk about growth, I talk about job-creating growth. Until 2008, when the food and fuel crisis hit, Africa's GDP growth had been averaging 5% a year for a decade. Over this high growth period, poverty declined at a faster rate than in South Asia. Health and education indicators were improving, albeit from a low base. And there were signs that HIV AIDS prevalence rate had begun to decline. The growth spot has been criticized in many quarters as jobless. And that is true that in many cases, it didn't create as much as many jobs. Not that it didn't create jobs, but not at a rate of growth fast enough to absorb the large numbers of youth coming on the job market. Besides, while this growth spot brought Africa in line with trends for other developing countries, it lacked countries like China and India. Therefore, what Africa needs is a prolonged dose of even more rapid job-creating growth in order to catch up. Note that Nigeria's GDP per capita is only about two-thirds that of India on a purchasing power parity basis, while those of Burkina Faso, India, uh, sorry, Ghana, Uganda and Mozambique, all regarded as good growth performers over the past decade, albeit with different endowments and geography, are less than one half. So these countries have a long way to go before they can catch up to India's per capita income levels, leave alone China's. The challenge, therefore, is to return to the pre-crisis growth path and then raise the growth rate beyond it. All this in a post-crisis environment a world that is grappling with global imbalances, a likely reduction in cross-border capital flows, a possible rise in protectionism and uncertainties regarding aid. So this is a challenge, the big challenge, in which there's little room to maneuver. So what can Africa do to help itself? It can borrow from the work of the Growth Commission, which released a report in 2008, written by several prominent practitioners and two Nobel Prize winners, led by Michael Spence, on strategies for sustained growth. 
I plead guilty to being a member of the commission. Its report lists five common underlying patterns or ingredients it found in countries, we found, in countries that grew rapidly, that is at 7% or more a year, for at least 25 years. These include macroeconomic stability, future orientation, good governance with a focus on inclusive growth, trade openness, and an emphasis on market incentives and decentralization. Africa needs to do all of this, while also investing in health and education, in infrastructure, in agriculture, as well as developing social safety net. Africa also needs to focus in on regional trade and regional integration and linking itself among countries as well as with the rest of the world. All of this needs to be done, and it's all reasonably well known, so I don't want to dwell on it. The remaining challenge is how to increase the productivity of labor, land, and capital through technological upgrading. And I think that there are four opportunities that are interlocking, that, are, we, we, that present themselves for doing this. And that's what I want to talk about. Not because they are the most important things, because the other things are known, but it's worthwhile putting these four opportunities up for discussion. The first opportunity is promoting labor-intensive manufacturing. Labor-intensive manufacturing is a channel for Africa to upgrade technology and thereby raise the productivity of workers. I'm not saying by this that Africa should not leapfrog to new technology or anything like that. I'm just saying that there's an opportunity that presents itself. Think about this. China is moving up the food, up the value chain in terms of its production and manufacturing. Costs are increasing for, for China and it's looking for places for lower cost production. Many countries are poised to seize this opportunity. When I was in Pakistan, talking to the manufacturers there, they were talking about this. Bangladesh, the same thing. When China is looking, why can't it be looking to partner with Africa, not just in extracting natural resources or in trading, but in actually becoming a true partner in the manufacturing sector? Companies that are experiencing higher costs will find it profitable to relocate their plant and equipment to the continent. I often joke, if you look at some of the things that are being manufactured in China, and I'm sorry I didn't bring some of the material that I show, but we have, for instance, our textiles, our intellectual property, you know, the African textiles that we wear, which are now increasingly manufactured in China. In fact, sometimes copying the, the label of the company. There's one particular one that I wear, UNTL. It's a company in Nigeria. And you find the same pattern that has been developed, manufactured there with even the label, with a company registered there. And then the material is sold at about maybe $2 per yard less. And it's very difficult to tell the difference. So of course, you know, if you're looking to save money, you buy that. As a result, our own manufacturing capacity is being undercut. And the issue for us is, why can't we discuss with them to relocate to do the manufacturing on the continent so that we can preserve jobs. That's just one example. There are many more in terms of household goods and others, but I'm particularly hot on that one because this is something very dear and special to us. 
The second opportunity is in agriculture. Agriculture represents an enormous opportunity which Africa needs to seize. Some years ago, both governments and donors, including the World Bank, left agriculture aside to focus on health and education. We are now back. And I think this time for good, we must focus on Africa's being able to feed itself. It certainly has the endowment to support smallholder farmers to do this. The continent has what it takes. But only a, fraction of, a small fraction of the total arable land, about 40%, that is available is being cultivated. So there's plenty of room to do more, to use the rest of the land that is available, but using it in a manner that is very sensitive to the people who are on the land. Right now, we find many countries, Japan is among them, several other countries in the Middle East are among them, uh, South Korea, that are looking for opportunities, not just looking, they're already investing in different countries in a kind of agriculture that is job creating uh, and that can be beneficial to the countries if well managed. These two types of agriculture can exist side by side. In fact, you can make one work for the other because it's high time to think of agriculture not in the old way we used to, but value added agriculture that looks all the way all up, the, from the, up the value chain from production with improved technology all the way up to marketing, both internally within the continent but also externally. That's the kind of agriculture. And if we have willing investors who would like to do this, I think we should not miss that opportunity. People may not know, but up to $50 billion already has been invested quietly by many of these countries in other countries in order to produce not just food but other agricultural products. I don't think that this is, a, an, this is an opportunity that we must not miss. There's a, I regard it as a win-win opportunity requiring that will enable us to acquire technology, pro promote a stable regime of contracts, promote innovations in a very crucial sector in the continent, and also bring in the required kind of infrastructure investments that we need uh, to make the sector work. The third opportunity that I see is that of climate change. It's both a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. Because Africa can augment its energy supplies by tapping its vast renewable resources, such as hydropower, which only 8% at the moment is currently exploited, compared to 30% in Latin America. For this, it will need access to technology and finance, but it's something that can be promote uh, good in terms of um, a good impact on climate change contributing uh, to this global problem, to, contributing to a solution to the global problem. Investing in sustainable agricultural land management can also enable soil carbon sequestration and contribute significantly to greenhouse gas mitigation. This could also have spin-off benefits for soil fertility, agricultural productivity, and food security. Agricultural carbon sequestration could generate annual revenues of close to $1.5 billion, which could be plowed back into the agricultural sector. But this would require that agricultural land management be included in future climate regimes so that Africa can benefit from the global carbon market and also contribute to climate change mitigation. 
The rich countries can help in two ways, by underwriting the development and transference of the necessary technologies to do this, and of course by reducing their own carbon footprint. The emissions increase resulting from providing electricity access to all 1.6 billion people in the developing world who do not now have it, we are told could almost be fully offset by replacing all SUVs in the US by fuel-efficient passenger cars. So just think about that. So it is essential that climate change be viewed as a major development opportunity for Africa, given the anticipated increase in the energy requirements uh, as growth accelerates that I spoke about earlier. The scope for meeting a large part of this through renewables uh, is, is enormous, and I think we should seize it. Many of you have heard of the Inga Dam, which if developed is capable of providing all the electricity required for most of the continent and even being able to export abroad. The last opportunity I want to talk about, and I notice it's becoming very warm, you know, so um, I'll try to hurry it up, is going back to what I referred to earlier. The crisis, this crisis, if you've noticed, has focused considerable attention on resources, where to find them as countries have expanded their borrowing and expanded their fiscal deficits. Great attention has been paid to where money is and where could, uh, where could more money be found and resources be found to help cope with the crisis. A great deal of attention has been paid to tax havens in rich countries. If you notice at the last G20 and continuing, this has been a very important subject. And with a great deal of pressure from major European countries, the tax havens in Europe have yielded up what they, are, they have hidden for, their, for, for the neighboring countries. Similarly, you heard recently about the US pressure on UBS, which has compelled it to reveal the names of 4,000 US taxpayers who have not paid the requisite taxes uh, on whatever resources they have uh, hidden abroad. So whilst all this is going and new sources of new resources that belong to other countries are being found and repatriated, I come back to my previous statement. Why can we not focus attention on the enormous resources lying out here in the developed countries to see how we can repatriate them for the benefit of the Remember I spoke about 20 to 40 billion in resources that could be sent back. We have both a stock problem and a flow problem. It's incumbent on the African countries to act to stem the flow. That's the first and primary responsibility of good governance and fighting corruption. But it's equally incumbent on the countries outside to repatriate the stock which they have. And some of them have been making progress. The UK has been one of the first countries to actually use some of its development funding to open a unit here with the Metropolitan Police that works actively on this issue. Switzerland, which has long had a reputation uh, for keeping uh, these kinds of resources, has been changing and has increasingly been repatriating them. So I'm saying this because sometimes I get puzzled that I do not see civil society rising up to protest this in the same way that they were very active during the debt campaign. We're talking of a problem with the same kind of magnitude. Why is civil society not acting? Why is there no outrage in the developed countries? Why is this 
resource that could be used for development not being explored. So I want to say to you that if we are looking for additional capital in this time of crisis, if we are looking for resources to invest, this is one resource which already belongs to the countries uh, from which it came, which we all, in an activist manner, or in whatever manner we can, should rise up. As young students here at LSE, food for thought, what can you do? What can you do to support an increasing call to attention to this issue? Let me conclude. The ongoing crisis is probably the biggest external shock that Africa has ever faced up to now. The priority is to protect the progress that was made during the decade preceding the crisis, whilst laying the foundation for even faster growth with more diverse sources. The continent is going to have to deal with a number of old challenges and new ones that I've already mentioned, but significant opportunities also exist, and I've mentioned what they are. They are of the moment because of what is happening in the global economy. And Africa must learn not just to look at what is happening now, but to think forward to how it can seize existing opportunities to make things better on the continent. Africa must look, see itself not just as a continent receiving of assistance. And I want the developed world not to, to see it not just as a continent requiring assistance, but as part of the new equation in the new normal, as a potential pole of growth. After all, we can't expect America to continue being the consumer of the world, or China to continue being the saver, and for both those economies to continue being the ones that drag the world uh, economic growth. We must look to multiple poles of growth, and Africa must not be left behind. It has the potential to be this pole of growth if it does some of the things I've just said, tackles the challenges, but also is awake to seizing the opportunities. Thank you very much. for a, a really um, magnificent uh, lecture sort of covering a very uh, wide range of material. Before we turn to questions, I, I was reflecting when I was sitting there um, as to why I'd been asked by George here to, uh, to chair the lecture. And I'm a professor of economics here, but that didn't seem to, to uh, explain things because I've mainly worked on India. Uh, and I, I, I guess it must be because I'm... Uh, heading up a very large center, which is based at the LSE in Oxford, working precisely on how to reignite growth in the developing world. And my co-director in that enterprise uh, is a, a person called Paul Collier at Oxford. So I rang up Paul and I said, tell me about Ngozi. And he said two things, which were both rather revealing. First of all, she's, he said, she's fantastic, which is obviously a high praise. The second thing he said is that she's a breath of fresh air in thinking about African development issues. And I think that's sort of come across very clearly in the lecture. Two areas that I thought were particularly uh, interesting and uh, challenging was, firstly, that if you think about development economics, as it's sort of traditionally been studied, there's been a massive focus on consumption. And indeed, that's not where growth comes from. And the focus that Ngozi gave to 
firms, farms, technology, and trade, I think is a really refreshing new focus, particularly focused on Africa. I mean, these would be natural focuses in, in Asia. And then the second thing I think was all, which was also refreshing was to take a bunch of challenges, which are obviously clear and real, but actually to get down to the nitty-gritty of how you convert those into opportunities. And for example, in the area of climate change, which we're, we're accustomed to thinking of as a terrible thing for Africa, which is terrible in all, all sorts of respects. She sort of converted that into potential to do something about it and to actually expand it to a new set of opportunities for growth in Africa. So now what we're going to do is I will sit down and uh, we'll begin to take questions. And I think what we'll do sort of, uh, is sort of group some of the questions together and then allow Ngozi to answer them and uh, keep going to the some, somewhere shortly before 8 o'clock. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, the format for the questions, if people could raise their hands and identify yourself, and then a mic will be brought to you, uh, and then uh, ask the question. So let's start, let's start down here. Um, Karenza Hulse, a student at University of Bristol. Um, you spoke about the need to try and bring countries like China into the equation and uh, bringing their sort of manufacturing from Africa, which would be a fantastic opportunity. Um, but China, there's very strong evidence to suggest some massive violations of human rights in their supply chains. And I knew concern that those practices would find their way into the factories in Africa as well. Hi, um, my name is Michelle Friedman, and um, I'm actually about to start working at the World Bank. So I'm just interested in having just read the World Development Report 2008. I'm looking for Oh, the I'm right here. <laughs> so, uh, so I can have you come work with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working in agriculture, actually. So um, it's interesting to me, having just read the World Development Report of 2008 about agriculture, um, that the World Bank definitely is very active in economic incentives to invest in agriculture in the developing world. But I was wondering, it seemed to be missing the political incentives to invest in agriculture in terms of how to actually get politicians to put, natural, to put public resources into rural populations, given that their primarily politically important populations are urban. And the second part of that question is how to get rich countries politicians who have an incentive to increase sub subsidies to our own domestic farmers to decrease subsidies to find those different political incentives in order to actually have um, a competitive advantage in agriculture take off in Africa. Okay, so let's have one more question uh, from up here. Uh, uh, my question actually concerned this. Can you just say who you are? Uh, I'm Jibril Alenyoui uh, from the OFT. Uh, you talked of capital outflow, and you've talked a lot about uh, foreign capital flowing into Africa, and one of the important factors of growth is actually labor, and what is more important here is the human capital, which uh, I was just thinking, which one is uh, more deficient in Africa? Is it human capital or is it uh, the, the flow of financial capital? And, and 
what, what makes me think about this is when, when the capital pumped into Africa flows out, does that not give a signal that actually the human capital is not maybe sufficient to capture this and make good use of it? Uh, uh, the same also with the technology you talked about. Today the internet uh, permits maybe the Chinese spread a lot of technology through the internet and are Africans able to capture also this technology and, 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 and make use of the capital you flew? Because if you think of Africa like firms, the countries like firms, how would you really uh, assess their ability the, 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 to, to capture this technology and the capital? Thank you. easier when you're short to, to stand up. You, you talked about the issue of uh, human uh, rights violations in China's supply chains. Of course, uh, one is very concerned. Um, and um, when we talk about bringing this kind or seizing this kind of opportunity, I think we must also seize it in an African way. Um, after all, when people go and set up manufacturing plants in China, don't they have to comply with Chinese rules uh, and ways of uh, doing things? I don't mean the human rights violation, but I'm saying when you bring something to a country, you have to adapt. So I'm not expecting that when this happens, we should put up with any kinds of violations. But that's up to us. You understand? It's not up to the Chinese. I mean, African governments have to step up to their own regulatory responsibilities. So if you have your laws that govern your labor laws and laws that govern the way that your people work and are treated, just because you're looking for investment doesn't mean that the human rights of your people should be trampled on. I mean, in many countries, just to give you an example, China would come in, and I think you know we must not denigrate China at the same time because they are providing an alternative source for certain types of investment that other countries are not doing. But we must regulate. They used to come with lots of their own labor in certain countries. And many countries have now realized that it doesn't, I, I'm not interested in the kind of you know, investment in which all the labor is brought from elsewhere. What's the point? So you have to step in and say, no, thank you. If you're coming here to invest, it has to be with our own people working. It has to be according to our rules. So I do agree with you on that. On the issue of um, the a very interesting point on economic incentives for agricultural investment and uh, what about political uh, incentives to put money in rural areas? I, th I think it's a very good point. Um, but perhaps it's interesting to think of it in two ways. I actually did not find a lack of political incentives um, you know, in many of the countries. If you go and look at what is happening to agricultural investment now that has come back in many of these countries, they are investing in things which are, they are politically saying we need to invest in the rural areas. But what we need to examine is, is this really happening? There's lots of money that goes into fertilizer and new seeds, which never get to the farmers. Okay, subsidies that go the wrong way. 
Uh, so I actually think that there's an, a political incentive to say we have the votes in those areas and we should put money there. But we need to pass this and see whether what is happening is really beneficial to the people. So the issue is how to take those politically driven decisions and make them work for the economics of the rural poor. And I think there's a real big issue there that you put your finger on, which we still need to tackle. I'm not sure we have all the answers uh, um, to that. And uh, I'll tell a joke. I mean, when I was in government, you know, there were uh, the agriculture ministers had a meeting, you know, and agreed a very good thing at the AU that each country must invest 10% of its budget in agriculture. And I had no problems with that. As you can see, I'm an agriculture buff. I, I really believe in the sector. But then the minister of uh, education also came and said, UNESCO says you must invest 20%. The Minister of Health came and said, WHO says 30%. And every minister, it just became, this is a true story. Every minister had some organization, external force. And one day I decided to total all of it up, and it totaled 120%. <laughs> so I, I then said, we have to do something here and step back, and then really examine the efficiency of resource use, of the resources we have at the moment, to make sure that works for us, and more importantly, works for the people in the rural areas, and then we can go from there. Now, you talked about, uh, posed an interesting question about the efficiency. Is human capital more important than, which one is more important, human capital, financial capital? Is money flowing now because you don't have the human capital to use it? Um, very interesting question. I don't think there is one more important than the other. I mean, if you were to, to think about it, if you have financial capital, but as you said, the human capacity and skills to put that to good work do not exist. You can't have any development. The most precious resource is the human capital. But if you also have human capital without some financial capital to make it work, that also, that's why we have land labor capital in economics to which I spoke about the productivity. So I think you need those forms of capital uh, to make things work. Um, and you need to look at the efficiency of their use. I personally do not believe that capital flees from the continent because, I mean, financial capital flows out because there's not sufficient human skills to use it. I think it flows out for various other reasons. There's some legitimate outflow that goes because of bad economic policies and people who are, you know, want a, a better place to invest their money, somewhere where it will make a return for them. That's legitimate. And what we need to do is fix our policies to keep our capital in place. But there's also the involuntary, or is it voluntary? I think it's voluntary. I don't know which one. Outflow of resources that belongs to the people, um, you know, that also goes out. And that's definitely not because you know, there's a lack of human capital to use it. So we have to watch both, because I think having the right policies, enhancing your skills, but maintaining an environment. Look at the fact that Rwanda, for now, is at the top of the doing business uh, index of the World Bank that just came out as the top reformer. They've been consistently reforming even during this crisis. And that's going to invite a lot of attention from their own domestic resources, regional people who want to invest as well as international. 
Okay, so we have an infinite supply of questions. <laughs> um, so we'll start with the person who has the mic down here. And there's a gentleman in the middle of the back row who can have his hand up first. He should be the first. And then we had a gentleman at the front here. So let's do those three next. So starting with the... My name is Nalima Golrajani. Um, I'm a lecturer in the Development Studies Institute and the Government Department. I'd like to suggest that there's possibly a ninth challenge um, to your list of eight, and it seems to be implicit in a number of your other challenges, which is maintaining um, official development assistance, concessional financing for Africa in the face of debt, um, volatility, corruption. Now, this seems to be a departure from many others who suggest within the crisis there is actually an opportunity to cut the umbilical cord that is foreign aid and there are a number of authors, I'm sure you're familiar with them. Um, and I, I'd like to know how you might respond to these critics. Okay. Uh, so, so the um, yep. got the mic. Uh, yeah, my, uh, my name is um, Olushina Adisa. Um, I'm particularly interested in the um, point you made about um, corruption, you know, repatriating stolen money back into the countries where they were stolen from. Uh, but um, my problem with that is um, are we thinking of uh, where the monies are going to be taken back to? Uh, if you take um, Nigeria where you served as a minister, for, uh, for instance, some of your colleagues with whom uh, um, corruption issues were you know, dealt with have been hounded out of the country. So is there any wisdom in returning money to characters who stole them in the first place? <laughs> I mean, who will merely return the money to where they were repatriated from? <laughs> Shouldn't the issue of leadership be, be, be addressed and be dealt with in tandem with, uh, I mean, before the issue of uh, repatriating money should be, you know, talked about? Okay, so the next question is going to come from here, and then could you move the mic over to that segment of the room? Well, my name is Larry Jones from the London Academy for Higher Education. Well, I'm a lecturer as well, but I'd like to ask a question as to why the skills, the skill set, you talk about Chinese coming to Africa to invest and do some work and not using the, lower, I mean, the local label, bringing their own label. What I found is to say, I mean, one of the lectures that uh, Salundo actually gave recently, he said 69 to 72 percent of our graduates are unemployable. Not that they can't get a job, but they're unemployable. And then when you look at that skill level, how can you bring someone to work with them when the skill set at the skill level are very, very low? My question is this, what is, for example, Africa or Nigeria doing to increase the skill level of its own citizen so as to compare favorably with the Western world? Okay, so I think let's go back to Ngozi with those questions. Mm -hmm. We'll have a, another set, my only limit is Well, I'll do this round, and I'll take another round, and then I think. Um, I think it's a. Uh, so you've taken my thing of finding a challenge and wrapping an opportunity into it. Very interesting one. I do agree with you that maintaining official development assistance is a definite challenge. 
some of the recent work we've been doing for low-income countries, including Africa, shows that it, it, there's uh, over and above already promised aid. We'll need a substantial amount because of the impact of the crisis just to maintain what I call cost spending, you know. Uh, for Africa, it could be upwards of six to seven billion on top of what was. And you know that what was promised, 20 billion is already short uh, of that. So we do have a challenge. Now, does this present us an opportunity to cut the umbilical cord, uh, as we are referring to Dambi Samoyo's uh, book and others who have talked about, about that? Well, I've always maintained um, that sometimes when we look at questions of economics or development, we go to extremes, it's either this or that. It's far more complicated than that. I think the, the, the quarrel, uh, well, let me put it this way. I have never looked on aid as what was going to develop Africa or my country, never, to be honest with you. I think that if you look at the resources that African countries generate themselves, that's of far more importance. And the key is to continue to push on generating those resources, on improving the tax effort in our countries, on generating more savings. And in fact, one of the interesting things that one was beginning to see prior to the crisis is increase in the savings to GDP ratio. Previously, countries that had had very low savings rate, 9% of GDP, you know, when you compare that to 30-something percent in the East Asian countries, is very far. We're beginning to creep up there because of better policies. I think we must not forget in this whole talk about aid and in investment, our own effort to generate our own resources and improve uh, the efficiency of taxes. The tax base is very narrow. So that's point one. Point two is private capital that Dambisa was referring to, which I think is a good thing. You know, one should also attract that. But the third leg is also this, the aid resources. So when you say win ourselves, I think that should be the eventual goal. No country would want to be on aid forever. But you need certain public investments, and certain countries are not yet generating sufficient savings to be able to put in place the public goods and the basic services that are needed. So they need that complement. And I always say that if resources are well used, our own resources that we generate, the investment resources that come in, and if aid is well used, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem I have is aid that comes in as, and it's not properly or efficiently used. You need all three pots of resources at the moment. Just think back, when these countries develop, like I always say, maybe, you know, just think about what would have happened to the UK if it didn't have the resources of its colonial countries to draw on. And I regard that as the fact that African countries have given sufficient aid to countries abroad. <laughs> so why are we so shy now? If for a period of time some of our countries, not all, some need this. This is just a reverse return. <laughs> so there you go. Now, you know, what, what will happen to monies taken back? Excellent question, really crucial. Certainly I'd never be an advocate to say send money back for it to be stolen one more time. <laughs> no, no country is going to do that. You know, but 
You know, first of all, there are some responsible governments on the continent, many now, many more than you would think, where, uh, you know, if you send the money back, it will be well used. But one is not helpless. In, during the time I was in Nigeria, when money was returned, there was actually an agreement between the Swiss government, the Nigerian government, and the civil society to monitor, to work with the World Bank to monitor the return of these monies and to make sure that they were put to use to development purposes. So I'm not just advocating a free return, but I think it should be coupled with a program in which first the country that is to re receive the return monies shows what it's going to be used for and makes it public, not for the outside, but for its own population. So that is very transparent. And then, you know, if you want to show your, your good and there's good governance, why sh you shouldn't mind having a neutral body come to monitor whether that money was actually put to the specific investment uses that you said it would be. So you need a plan, and the Stolen Assets Recovery Initiative at the World Bank actually includes a provision for that to be done. So that's the kind of approach that I would advocate. But there's no substitute for good leadership. You're absolutely right. And remember when I referred back to our governance and stability and dealing with, uh, openly with transparency and corruption issues? That takes leadership. That's what we need. But then we need to couple that with specific programs that enhance transparency in the use of resources in our country. You know, one of the things that I think uh, was most popular when we were in government, and I forgot to bring a copy, is the publication of the revenues of each level of government in Nigeria, the local level, the state level, and the national level. Each month, we took pages in the newspapers and published this. And I had no idea what that would result in when we started. Actually, I went to the president and said, can we do this out of frustration? Because I found that each month, you know, when we, our constitution requires that revenues accruing in the coffers of the federation be shared among all the entities, 36 states, 774 local governments and the federal government each month. So we actually sit down with all the different levels each month to share this. But sometimes the states and local governments will go back and say to the people that no, we didn't receive anything this month. And the federal government is to blame. You know, so when I would go to a place, I was highly unpopular because everybody said federal government didn't do this and Ministry of Finance did that. So in order to show that, look, this is not the case, we started publishing that. But it was, as I said, we put it into a booklet at the request of then President Obasanjo, the most boring bestseller ever. <laughs> because people just picked up on this and, you know, they used it to see and they could now challenge the policymakers. They could, whenever the local government chairman would say we didn't get anything, yet he's riding an SUV on bad roads that have not been built. People will say, well, but it was in the newspaper last this month that you got the equivalent of a million dollars for this local government area. What happened? Why have teachers not been paid? Why don't children have chalk in the schools? Why are there no medications in the clinic? People could challenge. Putting information and transparency in the hands of people is crucial. And of course, we don't see that now. You know, which shows you that 
It was doing something. So those are the kinds of measures that we need to continue um, you know, to push. Now there was a question about the uh, human skills are graduates you know, not being employable. I think it's amazing how country after country you find dissatisfaction with the education system of the country and what it's turning out. But in our own in, uh, country and in many African countries, deep dissatisfaction you know, at the skills um, you know, that are coming out. And yet, I think that the basic human material is there. Because one thing that amazes me, sometimes when Nigerians or Tanzanians or Zambians or who have you come out to compete abroad, the same people trained in some of these deficient universities are brilliant. Brilliant. So there's a basic human material there to deal with. And I just think that what you're talking about needs a strong reform effort in our education system. That's the only thing that is going to help. There's so many things that are not right. From the total lack of support to professors, you know, and to students, to even the physical environment that students learn in. You know, I went into a dorm because I'm the type who likes to go to the market. I used to be able to do that at least once a month, incognito, till it became impossible, just to see what's happening, or go to a dorm in a university to see for myself. And you find a dorm room meant for two students. There are six, sometimes 12. How can you learn in that environment? How can you learn? It's impossible. So we need a deep reform. We need to provide this, the equipment. We need to support the students. It's not an easy thing. This is a, a long-standing, I mean, this is something that will take time to bring us back to the path we were. But we don't really have any excuses. We need to do it. Okay. And Thank take you. three more. We've, we've kind of got an infinite supply, so we're not going to satisfy demand. So what I suggest is we have three very brief questions. So the gentleman has been very patient in the third row here. You could pass the mic. No, you must add a lady. Sorry? You have to add a lady to the two, okay, two so gentlemen. Lady, lady in the back. A lady in the back. Okay. So, so there, there, and then there. Okay. Thank you. My name is Tendai. I'm a Zimbabwean architect. Um, I just want to touch on the issue of corruption. Where there is corruption, it's um, always painted as an African problem, but very often it's... Um, it's an international problem. We have um, companies who have dedicated slush funds to um, corrupt leaders in Africa to get concessions and advantage over the competitors. What is being done an, at an international level to, to quell that sort of um, practice? Okay. We have the, uh, the lady in the back row, please. Hi, I'm Gail. I'm a financial journalist. I, uh, I guess my question is a bit, it's more like an extension or an add-on to what the gentleman just before me, you know, talked about, but I'm looking more at a macro level. Um, obviously, you know, uh, political risk 
continues to be uh, individual political, political risk of the various countries continues to be a deterrent of investments. And earlier you touched on uh, you know regional bodies like ECOWAS and SADC. Should you, don't you think there should be more emphasis in the growth of the regional bodies and international and you know governments, non-African governments working more to partner with the uh, regional bodies like SADC and ECOWAS also as you know, during the crisis, um, whereas, um, you know, the ECB, for instance, sat down and had specific uh, allocations to help the countries that were very hurt. Apparently, the African Development Bank, they did sit meeting up upon meeting and never really arrived at, you know, specific amounts to help the countries that were suffering the most in the crisis. So considering that you've got, you know, a lot of countries in, in Africa, don't you think that maybe the development of regional bodies and maybe working towards common regional currencies should be, you know, uh, one of the um, areas of focus. Okay, so final question. Can we keep it brief, please? Uh, yes, uh, Mrs. Iwala, I'm a Nigerian. My name is Duke. Uh, my question is uh, rather specific uh, towards the period of time when you were in government. Uh, in this country and in most uh, developed countries, uh, all the money or most of the money spent by the government is generated through taxation. So it is essentially the people paying for what they consume. Uh, in Nigeria, like most African countries, most of the revenue the government spends comes from resources that the people do not contribute towards government expenditure. In your time in government, I, I believe that you did try to bring in a tax regime. Where would you say the major obstacle to that change came from. You were in government, and when you talk about good governance, we, uh, the ordinary people looking along, would think that you and people like yourself, decision makers, are expected to make these changes. Would you say there were obstacles in your path, uh, in your attempt to bring in some reforms? Okay. All right. Okay. Um, the question on corruption as an international slush uh, problem and slush funds uh, that make it difficult for business to work and be competitive in certain countries, absolutely. Um, it's not just an African problem, it's an international problem. I think for us, when we speak to ourselves as Africans, because we are poor and we can least afford to have our monies stolen or taken away, we really need to focus in on this problem because the little that we have has to be husbanded. But there's no doubt about what you're saying. There's a supply side and a demand side to corruption or bribery. And, uh, and, and so um, that needs to be dealt with. And that's why I made the point that when we are talking about corruption and money's out, it's not just focusing on, the, on where the, the money's uh, uh, flowing from, but also on where it goes. Because if you can show on the other side that there's no safe haven, then people will have less incentive. Uh, if all countries would implement the United Nations Convention on Corruption, that would really help. Now, there are some uh, movements outside. There's the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention, to which all OECD countries are supposed to sign up. Their businesses are supposed to conduct themselves in a, a certain manner. And there's a peer review process in which they review each other's performance. Uh, and the OECD shares this information. Um, I think initially it wasn't as vigorously um, 
pursued or implemented, but I, I believe that more and more, as more evidence is coming out with Siemens, uh, you know, Halliburton, and so many of these companies that have uh, BAE systems, you know, all these things are coming out. People, uh, this OECD anti-bribery corruption should be made to bite, and, and I believe it should. The United Nations Convention is there. Not all countries have signed up, not even all the developed countries. There are still two or three of the G8 or G7 who are still, who still have not signed or ratified. This convention is sweeping, and if it is signed by all countries, it will indeed make it difficult to engage in some of these uh, activities. So yes, I agree with you, we need to, to stand, act on all sides. There are some instruments, and we just need to know what those instruments are and to, and to um, implement them. I'm glad the environment is changing a little bit, because I remember when I was in government and some companies would come and complain about you know, someone asking them. And I say, well, give me the name, the person who has asked, and we will deal with them. And they wouldn't. I think only one company ever came clean and told me, and those people, when they were mentioned, were identified, and they were, uh, action was taken. So we also need the courage to be more transparent. Um, and um, you can see there are so many examples that corruption is an international problem. From here to the US to everywhere, even in the private sector. You know, and I think I often joke that if Lehman brothers were Lehman sisters, <laughs> you know, we may not be where we are today. <laughs> so the men, I don't mean to be against you, but uh, sometimes the women are, you know, a little more, uh, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Emphasis on regional bodies, absolutely. Um, I really believe that regional integration is the way of the future and reliance on regional bodies in Africa because some of the countries are so small. If you look at some of the work that has been done on geography by Paul Collier and some of the others, uh, as well as the World Bank's recent World Development Report, it matters. And therefore, the only way for some of these countries to overcome their geography is through integration with others. And the regional bodies are crucial in doing that. In terms of common currencies and so on, I believe it should be a goal. But you need, we need domestically to have and implement good policies inside first. You cannot have a, a common currency area and then just bring in all the distortions from the domestic economies into the area. So we need to deal with that first in order to have a stronger uh, regional thing. But on the political side, I do believe the regional bodies are playing an increasingly positive role. And I think we need to support them and to make them work. On the AFDB, I mean, I don't have all the numbers, but I do believe they tried to be responsive in this crisis to support developing countries just like the World Bank did. I mean, we disbursed 25% more to low-income countries, and Africa got 53% of those resources, $14 billion this past year. And I believe the African Development Bank also stepped up. Uh, but maybe more information needs to be put out on, on what it's been able to do. And the final question was on, on tax reform. I totally believe, uh, agree with you. When I was in government, I saw a big scope for tax reform. But you know, doing reform, and we did. You know, we revised the codes. A big issue was tax administration. You know, so it's one thing to have the, the appropriate tax policies. 
is another to have tax administration work, and that just did not really work well. You know, if you want to pay your taxes at home in our country, it's so, so much of a burden. You know, the, what hoops you have to go through. So those kinds of things need to be, and they also give people who are working in that area cover to do the wrong thing. So you need to simplify, make more efficient tax administration and reward the people who are in the Internal Revenue Service appropriately. So that's one thing. But the biggest problem that I saw, and actually was trying to lay the basis to deal with it, is the narrow tax base. The tax base was just too narrow. You cannot run an economy just based on salaried earners, where the informal economy is a huge um, a percentage. So you know, I was thinking of doing something for all the small and medium enterprises, trying to demonstrate to them that government can actually be helpful by offering, if you come and register, nobody will tax you for the next 10 years. But instead, we'll offer you services, we'll develop, because infrastructure for them to work and areas for them to congregate, that, that was a problem. How can we give them places where they can locate themselves, that makes sense, instead of on the roadside, you know, provide them some services and then have a long-run view, not taxing them today, but preparing them for taxation 20 years from now. That's what I was thinking about. Didn't get a chance to do it. Okay. okay. Uh, Thanks. I'd, so I'd just like to thank everybody for coming and also very much to thank the speaker. Thank you.